Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Joanna. And this is Show Your Work. Free... Uh, wedding. You know, this is the final show your work podcast before Prince Harry becomes a married man. I should quit. <laughs> I should quit right now. We sit together before we start recording the podcast and line up the podcast. And we had a theme for this show that was not that <laughs> at all. I do this to you. You do do this. Yes. I know, but I, I just, you will understand in a few short moments why I am offended by this. But yes, let's indulge you. Prince Harry, age 30, whatever, is going to get married. And to Meghan Markle. Yeah. And what? Like, well, and I'm just saying meets the theme of today. Meghan Markle definitely meets today's theme. I guess. <laughs> I, But, I, you know, no, but here's the thing. Like, look, lest anybody be... Yes, like, please cut out this pause so that I don't get yelled at by a listener. But yes, lest anybody be mistaken, like I, like many, many modern people these days, I lived with my now husband before we got married and we got married and ultimately returned back to the home where we already lived. But I didn't have, you know, networks around the world following me. Like, I guess what I'm saying is he will get married to Meghan Markle and nothing will change. Right. They'll go back to Kensington Palace. Yes. I think they're going back to work right away. They're not going on their honeymoon. Like many couples these days. Yeah, sure. They're just like us. They, I mean, (laughs) you mean they're not going to have a vacation from their vacation? No. Right. No. Just regular vacation. Yeah. I just wanted to point out that um, our next podcast after this one will be right after the royal wedding and i can't wait to have that lineup um that lineup uh a meeting with you where we fight about what is going to go in the podcast you mean which fascinators are going to go exactly. in the podcast exactly and i'm going to be like we have to talk about it and you're going to be like oh but you know what is there to say really <laughs> i mean if we're talking about people's work uh <laughs> these people are allowing others to work around them, but you will be working. You will be there uh, with a lot of your colleagues covering the royal wedding. And I think you have us on some sort of crazy jet lag schedule that I will believe when I see it to to record mere moments after you exit the plane. I bet. I think that we should because then it'll be like fresh. The moment I finally sleep after a week, um, I will be good to nobody because it'll be lost. Right. Anyway, I promise you, all of you, that I will try to convince Duanna to let me talk about whatever work it was that went into the royal wedding and to try to find some work angle so we can continue talking about the wedding because I know after our next podcast, you're going to want to talk about it a little bit out there and Duanna's going to be the contrarian, that person who always is there at the door, slamming the door shut, and I will fight it. 
everybody. I, I don't know if I you. agree with this characterization. <laughs> we can talk about the wedding and work. Just don't try to tell me that he and she are working people because that stretches our credibility just a bit. They're ambassadors of their brand. But she was a working actress until very recently. Yes. Uh, so I will grant you that tenuous thread. For today? For today. Okay. Uh, to our podcast, which became the all-TV edition because uh, for one of the first times since we've started doing this, uh, our topics are happening like in real time as we're recording. As we record this, all of the pilot pickups that uh, are being announced are happening kind of as we speak. It is uh, evening in the East, which means it is late afternoon on a Friday in the West in LA where all the decisions are being made. So hearts are being broken and days are being made even as we speak. That's which, right. Which is why we decided to to go this way. Well, you, I didn't know, it's Friday afternoon, I didn't know you told me when you sat down that a show that was not picked up, a project that was not picked up, and a project that actually got, I feel like, a lot more publicity and write-ups prior to this, um, more usually than things that are pitched typically, and that's because of the names associated, is the one uh, with Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba, Bad Boys. Well, it's actually a Bad Boys spinoff called LA's Finest. The the news broke uh, a little earlier today, uh, less than an hour ago, that uh, LA's Finest has not been picked up. It was starring Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about how Gabrielle Union was really vociferous about wanting a name star opposite her in the pilot. And, you know, I haven't seen it. It was executive produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. But what was interesting is that I guess, uh, according to The Hollywood Reporter, sources say talks between NBC and Sony broke down uh, when talking about this show. So it was kind of it says here, you know, LA's finest was considered the biggest slam dunk of pilot season, given its built-in premise, star, and producing team. Union also personally recruited Alba. So this means that the pass is that's insider trading stuff. That has to do with, you know, the network getting pissed off by something else at the studio and saying, well, fuck you, we're not picking up your show then. It's really interesting. It doesn't mean it's dead though. No, so if NBC passes on it, they can still take it. Sony can still take it elsewhere, right? Yes, which didn't used to be the case. Yeah. Uh, I mean, theoretically, you always could have. But now we're in an age of shows jumping networks all the time, of Netflix revising series, of Netflix reviving series that have been canceled by traditional networks, uh, of Hulu and Amazon and other non-traditional outlets being hungry, hungry to do things. So I don't think you should count it out just yet, but it's really interesting that the kind of biggest slam dunk, to quote them, uh, suddenly became a non-player when it broke down in contract issues. Okay, so let's go there. Yeah. What are some of the reasons why this would have broken down? Number one, money, right? It could be money. Uh, it could be, you know, sometimes it's about, oh, hey, studio, hey, Sony, uh, we want you to recast the leads. I don't think that's the case here, no. but it could be that. Yeah. And the studio could dig their heels in. 
it sounds to me here like this may have been uh, talks. It says that the talks broke down as part of the annual packaging renegotiation, which focused on a Norman Lear series as well as the Blacklist and Timeless. So it could have been about one side or the other saying, mm-hmm. if you pick up this, then we're not giving, if we pick up LA's Finest, we're not renewing the blacklist, for example. Yeah. And Sony's saying, fuck you then. We're not going to give you mm-hmm. LA's finest. Don't sue me. I do not know. Uh, but something to that effect. Well, I think I think you're right on there because if the Hollywood Reporter is actually citing annual packaging negotiation between the network and studio, that sounds to me like what that scenario is. And I do want to sort of spend some time on that because I don't know that people – out there typically know that this is how things are done at the upfronts. So at the upfronts is where all these things are presented. We see the photos all the time and then they announce and they maybe show some clips and the stars are there. Behind the scenes though, there's a lot of negotiation and there are a lot of deals being made. And I think the assumption is that a show gets assessed on its own basis, right? You go as a show, I mean the assumption, not the insider knowledge, but for some person out there who's saying like, oh, how did Grey's Anatomy get picked up? The assumption would be that you pitch the show to the network, you show them the pilot, they really like it, they say, okay, we're going to take this for whatever, however many episodes. It's actually not how it works. As you mentioned, as we talked about in this Hollywood Reporter article, there are packaged deals. So if you want one show, often you have to get another. Yep, often that can be the case. Uh, It stems from the fact that when networks are ordering pilots from studios, they order more than they need. I know we've talked about this a little bit, but networks always order, say, 25 pilots for five slots. They're going to pick up five uh, and put them on the air in the fall, and they're going to, assuming that they will renew five that already belong to that studio, which is the packaging that you're talking about, Uh, And maybe they'll pick up another three or four for what they call mid-season replacements. You've all heard the phrase mid-season replacement. We know it. But the reason mid-season replacements exist, those shows that premiere in March, is because they are standbys for shows that will fail. And I didn't say might fail. I said will fail Mm -hmm. because the whole model is that you know putting shows on the air in the fall that those shows probably – are going to have a failure rate of something crazy like 65 to 80%. That's bananas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a while since I looked at my charts, but I think the number of shows that continue through a given season, you know, a new show that you love, maybe there are three or four a year. And when you consider that a year before that, there were over 100 people writing scripts that they thought that were going to be made pilots that were going to go to series, it's a weird gauntlet. Then combine that with, as you say, uh, packaging deals so that NBC might say to Sony, oh, hey, we're going to pick up four shows from you. And Sony says, okay, here are two pilots and here are two returning series that you've had for three years. And NBC says, yeah, no, no, we don't want one of those returning series. Excuse me, what? It's a returning series. We've been there. Uh, if those kinds of talks break down, then that can be a reason why the whole deal goes sour. So with respect to LA's Finest and Gabrielle Union and Jessica Alba, it doesn't sound like this was a quality-based decision, um, which is why we're here, is is to sort of differentiate between pilots that get passed on 
based on quality. It just wasn't good enough. They wanted to change the leads, et cetera. Um, it doesn't sound like this is the case here. So to your point, it doesn't mean it's dead. No. Now um, they can take it somewhere else. That's right. Now they could take it somewhere else. Say Amazon wants to buy it. Amazon could have their own deal points. They could say, we want 10 episodes instead of the 13 that you've sketched out, or we want to change maybe not the two leads, because again, in this case, those are a huge draw, but, uh, you know, we want to change the second lead, the like hot guy they are maybe dating or maybe working against or whatever it turns out to be. Those are all debates that can happen before those pickups happen. And as you say, uh, the upfronts, which is when the the pilots are marched out on stage and all the advertisers get to buy them, are what the network wants to present to the world. But Amazon and Hulu and uh gosh, all those sort of untraditional broadcasters don't have that same May deadline for a May upfront that means they have to put out front what they will air in the fall at more or less the same time. So there's a little more leeway to to debate that and to work on all of those creative points or not creative points. But what I always find is interesting during pickup and put down season. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> is that we assume that a big name is an automatic yes. It's so, you would assume that, yeah. right? Like, it's like, yeah, why not? One of the lines in this Hollywood Reporter article about LA's Finest is Jessica Alba, who hadn't done TV in years. So it's like a big return. Um, and sometimes that's the case. But sometimes it's not, you know, like uh, uh, you've heard of like Larry David getting shows turned down and you've heard of like there are big names who sometimes get kiboshed. Uh, an interesting one that just came through is that uh, a series that was being executive produced by Kerry Washington, now not starring in it, but who was going to executive produce it, uh, starring Allison Hannigan. We wrote about this on the site. Allison Hannigan is stealth rich, you guys. Uh, check it out called Man of the House, is not going forward. And that seems like a slam dunk, right? Yeah. Like, I mentioned Alison Hannigan because she's been on, like, two series that are favorites running about 10 years each. Carrie Washington is Carrie Washington. Mm -hmm. It seems like it should be a no-brainer. Yeah. But. But no. No. And does that one have a chance to get repitched somewhere else? I guess it could. You know, uh, I think there are various deal points that always have to be met and is – Sometimes the talent that you sign to your show is exclusive to that studio. So if that studio, for example, wants the talent for somebody else, if Allison Hannigan was exclusive to that studio, and I don't know that she is, they could just say, oh, no, just kidding. We're going to put her in a different series instead mm -hmm. uh, and not allow that show to go ahead. This is where it gets really murky. There's something called second position. This is really fun. I'm nerding out big time here. Uh Gilmore Girls is a famous example of this. Uh, when Gilmore Girls was searching for Lorelai, they couldn't find the right Lorelai. They couldn't find the right Lorelai. They auditioned Lauren Graham, but Lauren Graham was on a show that was maybe going to be picked up, probably going to be picked up. So they don't want to make a show with somebody who can't do the show. Yeah. But she was the Lorelai. They had to have her. So they made the pilot with her. Uh, knowing that she was in second position. She could only do Gilmore Girls if the yeah. other show is canceled uh, and did so. It 
was canceled, boom, the end. But the opposite can be true. Uh, like Damon Wayans Jr. was on New Girl in the pilot, and then uh, Happy Endings came back out of no place. And all of a sudden, they had to recast Damon Wayans because technically, Happy Endings was in first position. But who thought it was going to come back after kind of, I think it had been off the air for something like 18 months or something insane. Nobody expected that. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you have to recast Damon Wayans. Or I think they made up a hilarious reason why he had to leave and his cousin came or something, which is glorious. It's a very funny, funny, fun game of musical chairs. Unless... It doesn't work out for you, and then it's not fun at all. Speaking of Wayans, didn't you mention that Wayans had pitched something with Harry Styles? Okay, wait. Okay, wait. So this is amazing. Uh, so the Damon Wayans Jr. project is still untitled, uh, and so it's going to be executive produced by one of the same producers as uh, the Late Late Show with James Corden. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... Uh, So it's about a time when Damon Wayans Jr. and Harry Styles live together as roommates. Which, I'm sorry, what? You didn't know this was the case. Did you? No, but I hope it was like a two and a half month period. Like, I hope they're getting a whole series out of a small, small sublet situation. I... I just don't even know, like, how that happened. I mean, you associate Harry Styles with London and with touring with One Direction. When did he have time to be roommates with Damon Wayans Jr.? Okay, so here's where it gets funnier. Uh, They say that although the show is not based on real-life experiences or characters, that is a line that I am quoting directly. Right. uh, Harry Styles is now going to be an executive producer on the series. He was not involved at the pilot stage, but now that it's going ahead, he's like, no, 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 wait a second, I'm in. But he's not acting in it. No, he's going to, uh, not that I know of, he's going to be an executive producer. Like, how old is Harry Styles at this point in our life? 24? How old is Damon Wayans? I'm going to say 38. Damon Wayans Jr., I should say. 38? Uh, Sure. And Harry is exactly 24. I was right on that. Okay. Okay. So Damon Wayans Jr. age is 35. Okay. So... Basically, what we have here is unlikely roommates for two months with a an 11-year age difference, and it's not based on real life, but it's totally based on real life, obviously. And it got picked up. And it got picked up, and Harry Styles is an executive <laughs> producer. Okay. And what that means is anybody's guess. It's a comedy, yes? It's a comedy, uh, but I don't know whether it's a single cam or a multi-cam. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was another article in The Hollywood Reporter that uh, was titled The Roseanne Effect, Mm -hmm. Networks Doubling Down on Multi-Camera Comedies. And I really, really want to talk to you about this because I didn't know until maybe a few years ago that there was single and multi-camera. Like, as a viewer, I didn't think about it. Um, And of course, now I think about it all the time. And I feel like there was, uh, over the last decade at least, there has been a little bit of a hierarchy where the single camera comedy was treated as more prestigious and the multi-camera comedy with, you know, the live audience and the clapping was treated as, oh, that's so old school. We don't make comedies like that anymore. It doesn't look as fresh. Um, With the success of Roseanne, though, I guess what The Hollywood Reporter is saying is that are we swinging back to multi-camera? And I wanted to know what you think about that. But 
I feel like we should we should do a little bit of a we should do a little bit of an entry level discussion on single and multi cameras. I mean, I I will do it, but I have to like make you roll your eyes first uh, because <laughs> to really get into this, I have to tell you a cutesy story from my childhood. Uh, okay. I was obsessed with television from a young age, as I think you know. Yeah. Um, I was also forbidden to watch television, so this is what happens when you forbid that in your children. Uh, but I remember asking my parents on like a, a rare TV day, why sometimes why sometimes it looks like you're there and sometimes it looks like you're not there. And they were like, what are you talking about? Please go practice the mm-hmm. piano. Like get out of here. Yeah. Um, but what I guess I was referring to was the kind of window effect that you get from uh, a multicam show. And the reason is that multicamera shows were historically shot uh, live to tape, mm-hmm. uh, which is multicam means a three camera sitcom, as you say, with cameras that are more or less in place. Uh, there's one camera shooting the big action and one camera shooting over people's shoulder on either way. I'm making gestures here, everybody, but friends is the big example. Mm-hmm. Big, huge rooms that you can picture where you know all the angles and there's lots of stuff to look at in every part of the room, but you never see that fourth wall. You never know what's on the other side of the apartment that is looking in there. That's a multicam show. Uh, and the multicams mean that there are various cameras. It's not just three cameras. Usually there are more moving in for the close-up on Ross or on Rachel or so forth. Single cam shows, as they're called, mean that there's only ever one camera Mm -hmm. working at one time. Right. Although there are ways around this, but stay with me. Uh, And so uh, Arrested Development is a single cam show. There's only ever one perspective on the scene. Yeah. Uh, If you, even though they cut into, um, you know, Michael Bluth's reaction, it's because they went back an hour and a half later and got Jason Bateman's reaction instead of getting it on the fly Right. As you say, in front of a live studio audience. Right. Um, So, yeah, multicam is, Roseanne is the Murphy Brown reboot, which is straight to series, by the way. Right. Uh, Is uh, your beloved Blackish is, uh, what else? Modern Family. No. Okay. So that's why I, right now I'm looking at the, let's call it the best comedy Emmy award winners since 20, since 2005. Sure. Okay, so The Office. No, single cam. Okay, 30 Rock. Single cam. 30 Rock. Or, <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> never mind, 30 Rock just won a few years in a row. Okay, 2010, Modern Family. Single cam. Uh, twen- Modern Family wins several years in a row. Veep. Single cam. So uh, Veep wins and Veep won last year too. So we are in the era, I guess, of prestige. To go back to my point earlier, single camera has been prestigious. Right. But what's interesting about the shows that you brought up is Modern Family is the epitome of a multicam style show. Yeah. It's set in a home. Yeah. And it sets, you know, really well. That's why I well. thought it was multicam. Right. Yeah. Um, it's really about the shooting style and not about the type of story that it tells. Okay. Uh, I would even put a 30 Rock in that same yeah. place. Yeah. Uh, in that 30 Rock is 100% single cam, but it's about the style of shooting and the way it's done. Yeah. Uh, but 
the fact is you've seen all four walls of Liz Lemon's office. Yeah. You don't need to create these big sets that you only see part of. However, just to like blend it in, Saturday Night Live is shot in a multicam situation. Kimmy Schmidt, though. Single cam. Single cam. Can you ever see Tina Fey shooting a multi-camera comedy? I Well, you know, Tina Fey has made so many jokes about being a bad actress. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about multicam is that the way they work is different. If you're shooting a single camera show, you are shooting every day. And when they're done, they take the footage and go and cut it. And then right. you work on the next one. For multicam shows, the it's much more like a play. Uh, so the actors rehearse and go through their blocking. And then they do their performances on the day on the stages uh, in essentially a performy kind of way. Yeah. So it is maybe harder on the actors or maybe not because there's a lot of like come in and sit down and everybody goes, wah, ah, 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 yeah. ah. So all this to say, no, I don't think Tina Fey would do a multicam, but she did do Saturday Night Live and she was capable. So she's capable of live. That's a, Tina Fey is an interesting hybrid question there. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that the crossover is going in different ways. It used to be, as you say, that there was kind of a hierarchy. There was multicam and there was single cam. And dramas, I should say, are almost always, well, they are always single cam. There's no dramas that are a multicam show because it doesn't lend itself to that experience because you don't want a whole bunch of audience members sitting there while somebody gets shot outside 52 Division sure. in Chicago. But one of the most interesting pickups to me is that Nina Dobrev is starring in a comedy show called Fam, which is multicam, uh, and that's been picked up to series. Uh, and it is totally different from what she's done before, which is a lot of, obviously, The Vampire Diaries was single camera, uh, and she's done a lot of films, a lot of action and kind of thriller films lately. So this is a total departure there. To answer your question about Tina Fey um, with Nina Dobrev, as you do, and to bring it back to Jessica Alba, all of the lines are being crossed all over the place. You know, a few years ago, it was Kat Dennings in Two Broke Girls, who had had kind of a thriving film career, who went to Two Broke Girls because it was the project that she wanted to do. Or Anna Faris and Alison Janney, who do Mom, um, both of whom have had kind of high-profile careers that did not involve multi-camera comedy. Mm -hmm. So it is no longer a place that you move from. It's a much more – now I'm making a helix kind of shape with my hands. It's it's much more of a jungle gym that you can move around. So is it safe to say that the distance in levels in that hierarchy is being reduced? Not just reduced. I would say they're scrambled. Yeah, um, because or eliminated, I guess. Yeah, because you know now you get into what is the hierarchy about? Is it about prestige? Okay, there are still prestige things. It's still more prestigious to be on something like mm-hmm. The Handmaid's Tale that everybody loves, uh, even if a lot of people are, you know, not as many people watch it per se. Uh, but often, if you are the anchor of a multicam show, if you are Alice and Janney, say, or Candace Bergen to do Murphy Brown, there is a massive, massive paycheck there for you. And it is a paycheck that is enormous, especially compared to, say, 
uh, I, Tanya, which Alice and Janney did, which got her the Oscar, but which is not going to be a fiscal uh, win. Yeah. And in Hollywood, there are all different kinds of hierarchies, right? Like there yes. are awards hierarchies right. and that kind of thing, but there are also people who can get their calls return no matter what because they are money makers. Well, I mean, your the point, the takeaway from me there is that mom, Alice and Janney, enabled her to do I, Tanya. She couldn't have been paid very much for I, Tanya, but the paychecks that she gets on mom, multicamera? Mom is multicam. Allowed her to take it's an independent film. Remember, I mean, like they only sold it at TIFF. It was uh, like Margot Robbie, her production company. It wasn't a huge moneymaker. The money, the check that Alice and Janney got on I, Tanya was not anywhere close to probably maybe one episode of what she would have got, what she gets on mom. I would say it was not six figures for yeah. what she got on I don't I, Tanya. Think so. yeah. yeah. And I, you know, she's of the caliber where she can be close to probably over six figures. Um, per episode on mom? You yeah. Mean? Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So, okay, so… I asked you if you think Tina Fey would do multi-camera. Um, we examined that. But Ryan Murphy, the king of TV. I mean, the king of some TV. Yeah. Yeah. Who is now the most highly paid mega producer of television with a 300, what, 350? 300 or 350 million dollar deal with Netflix. About to launch another show, yet another show. Every fucking three months, there's a new Ryan Murphy show. Well, yeah, he's prolific. Yeah. Yeah. Versace just concluded, mm -hmm. I feel like. And Pose is about to come on. Right. Um, all of those are single camera, yes? Yes. Ryan Murphy, to my memory… Because they're dramas in essence. Yes. But Ryan Murphy has had a multicam show. Uh, if you are the kind of nerd who watched The Glee Project, no, not Glee, but the reality show The Glee Project, uh -huh. um, that would have been uh, a multicam show or what they call like a multicam hybrid because those are shows where reality shows, the, the cameras are moving around a lot. It's not, uh, they kind of do it like a, a sitcom, but it's not rehearsed except when it is. So anyway, that's my little asterisk to be contrary uh, and to use... 28 words to yes. say yes. Uh, that he his has shows, done. He has done, but his shows, generally speaking, are single cam. Yes. Now, his shows, generally speaking, are one hour. Yep. And multi-camera shows typically are half an hour. Yeah. There's no such thing to date yep. as a multi-cam drama. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. A soap is a multi-cam drama, so I shouldn't say there's no such thing. Uh, soaps because they have to do so much, yeah. uh, like Guiding Light or uh, One Life to Live or I don't General know, Hospital. Me. Sure, yeah. thank you. I don't know if that Guiding Light and One Life to Live are on anymore. I mean, I'm super <laughs> up with my soaps. I don't know what's on as the world. General turns. Hospital, I know for sure. Is Days still of on. Our Lives. I oh God, I mean, they are becoming. It's a sad thing that they're like one by one, they're going right. Um, and I mean, this is one of the other sad things is because this is not what we are intending to talk about, but there's a lot of work that goes into soaps. And a lot of stars you will find who started in soaps will say, God, I worked hard. Because you are given, uh, you know, pages and pages and pages of dialogue mm -hmm. to do the next day. Yeah. Because they have to keep it going and keep it going and keep it going. So a lot of 
actors will say, no, I learned the ropes on the soaps. No pun intended. Um, God, I'm going to make a button. <laughs> so many. Julianne Moore. Yeah. Kelly Ripa. Uh, yeah. I had Sarah Michelle Gellar was on soaps. Uh, I- I'm pretty sure Chris Evans was on a soap opera. In fact, let me just check this. Yes, Chris Evans was on One Life to Live, which I think you just name-checked. <laughs> or did, was that Guiding Light? Did you say One Life to Live anyway? I might have said them both. Um, but, like, you know, Demi Moore was on soaps. Uh, John Stamos. Elizabeth Banks? This is news. I did not know this. Elizabeth Banks started on soaps. And, of course, your favorites, uh, Brad Pitt. Leonardo DiCaprio started on soaps. Correction. Uh-oh. Chris Evans was not on One Life to Live. His brother is was who's his brother scott i was really hoping it was going to be one of the other chris's i was really hoping you were going to say it was chris pine instead but yeah soaps are a a real working ground it's kind of a summer stock that is not summer stock Mm -hmm. um so those are multicam dramas if such a thing that's that's the exception that proves the rule otherwise ryan murphy makes single camera dramas that you know and love um, as you said, like Versace, which I have not yet watched, but I'm rabid to do is amazing. I'm waiting with bated breath for Katrina pose, uh, which you mentioned is on its way out and has been a long, long time coming. Yeah. Like we've been waiting for pose for some time now. Yeah. And of course, Glee, everybody knows OJ Simpson, American Horror Story. Nip Tuck. Yeah. Uh, we should go back. Well, no, and it goes back to, for me, Ryan Murphy began with Popular. And uh, I sort of am a bit snobby about Ryan Murphy because I'm like, mm, I knew him when. But then you sent me this really incredible, uh, then you sent me this really incredible New Yorker article about Ryan Murphy. And I was devastated to find out that he feels so hurt by the fact that Popular was not a success. It ran for just two seasons on the WB, uh, which was the pre-CW. If you did not know that because you were too young, Mm -hmm. please ask your mom before you listen to this podcast anymore. Um, And he was so devastated by its not being a success that he asked for them not to mention it when he got like an achievement award recently. Oh, he is. I mean, this New Yorker profile is... First of all, it's written by Emily Nussbaum, so you have to read it, period, the end. But it is so insightful because it's Emily Nussbaum in that this is Ryan Murphy, and Ryan Murphy was profiled a few weeks ago in The Hollywood Reporter, and I think we touched on it a little. And this and this profile makes that Hollywood Reporter article seemed totally inconsequential. I mean, we are really getting into the psyche of Ryan Murphy here. Point number one, what you're talking about, popular was how long ago? And it was before Glee and it was before American Horror Story and it was before this, that, and the other and the Emmys and the $300 million or 350 Netflix deal and whatever. And he's still like, I guess the internet term is butthurt about it. Um, He's still rather sensitive about it. And this is really insightful in understanding who he is and how he works. For all of his success, he's still extremely thin-skinned, petty. Oh, yes. Again, see the Glee Project uh, because you can see him in action. (laughs) He stars as himself when judging teenagers. 
uh, which is preposterous to me that he would put himself yes. on camera yes. judging teens, but he did. Yeah. And was petty then. Petty. He can be gracious, but also not very generous. He is resentful. He keeps grudges, but he is also really, really fair. I mean, he was the one who said, hey, 50-50 and made it happen in less than a year. And by 50-50, I mean he was the one who pledged that his production company and all of his works would have 50-50% representation, that he would be the first. And this was before Weinstein and that scandal and Time's Up, really. Um, he was the one who said, I will be making sure to uplift and, and, and encourage voices of all different representations. So this is, I mean, this, this is in a nutshell, and this is what we say in writing and developing characters. We want complicated people, right? He's not just this guy, 50-50 and writing and like touching stories that move conversations forward and address hypocrisy in our society. He's also the one who's kind of being a bitch about <laughs> popular and Shonda Rhimes. And I mean, that was the best. He thinks Shonda Rhimes and uh, Jill Soloway are, are snobby to him, that they snub him at events. Yes. Who has time to notice that? Yes. Like Shonda Rhimes and Jill Soloway are just as busy as you. But he is noticing. Yes. Um, but I think that's kind of what makes him amazing. Uh, and, you know, as we get more and more into being able to see more aspects of celebrities' lives that we didn't get to, as social media opens all kinds of doors that weren't there, we maybe are at a new frontier of the celebrity profile, too, because there are reads that are better than I've ever read. And you want that to be the case generally, but there are some spectacular moments recently. And God, we love Emily Nussbaum, but this is not... She's not the only one who's mm -hmm. writing like this. That said, there is a paragraph uh, halfway down the article that almost could start it, that kind of encapsulates everything you're saying about Ryan Murphy, how he came to be so successful, but also so petty <laughs> and so ridiculous, but also so focused. And it reads as follows. Murphy's first celebrities were nuns. Every year, his family invited one to tag along in their green pinto on their vacation to St. Petersburg, Florida. When night fell, Murphy would interview the nun du jour. Have you ever kissed a boy? Do you think he'll go to hell? He was captivated with their fashion. That right there, yep. to me, is a, a tiny acorn of a fascinating anecdote about the, the complicatedness, as you say, of a man that you need to be running all of these shows, to be running an empire. Yeah. Uh, and not running out of steam or ideas or enthusiasm. Look, the point of this podcast as a whole is to dissect and analyze work and to understand people's working styles. For him, he is the most successful, right? Super, super successful. He has this huge deal, as we keep repeating. And he is asked over and over again, and he addresses it many times in this article, hey, when are you going to slow down? When are you going to run out of time? Um, everybody says, and we have talked about it just today, every three months, there seems to be a Ryan Murphy project. Some people, they say, some celebrities, 
can barely do one a year, right? And here he is, he has so many on the go. How does that happen? How does that work style, how is that sustained? And listen, he has assistance and he has a method. I'm sure it works for him. But one of the things that stands out for me is he shows how highly competitive he is in this article. He is constantly, and Emily Nussbaum points this out, he is constantly going around asking, is it a flop? Is it a flop? So what he'll do is he'll- About any show. About, about any show. Any not show that own. comes up in conversation. That's is right. Is it a hit or a flop? Is it a hit or a flop? So, and he's in TV, right? So he's running into all these TV people. He's talking to other writers. He's talking to other producers. He's talking to the studios. And the Emily says the question that is always coming out of his mouth is, is it a flop? But what I love about that too is that something's got to give, right? And if you are somebody who is this prolific and has this much on the go and this many shows and millions more in development that we don't know about yet, something's got to give. And one of the things that has to give is actually knowing about how the shows are doing. Some people read the trades. Some people are keeping track of what is a flop or a hit or whatever. Yeah. Ryan Murphy is not. He's just being a petty bitch and asking everybody who talks about it. Yes. He doesn't know, and he's clearly not watching them. Like, he's not gauging a show based on whether he likes it or not. He never says, I love that one. I hate that one. He says, is a flop? Yeah. Like, he's just gauging who's up and who's down. And that's how he plays the game. And also in the process, judging. Like, you know, he'll hear about something being a hit. But if it doesn't meet his aesthetic, he's still like, I don't want to make that. Which, for those of you who haven't read this yet, he makes a comment that is, I believe, 100% about Sopranos. Go on. I mean, it's right up at the top. Murphy, I'm quoting, Murphy, whose shows include Glee and American Horror Story, loves extremes. He's proud never to have made, he says, quote, the long Somonex hour that ends in gray and a fade out. Well, thanks for the spoiler. (laughs) I don't think that's a spoiler. No, but I mean, regardless of whether that is about the Sopranos or the soon-to-be fate of my beloved The Americans, uh, three weeks and counting, just Mm -hmm. shout at me if you're with me because I'm having a heart attack about these people. Uh, it's very true, right? Like the television that Ryan Murphy makes, and I think it's fair to say that it has been getting better and better and better, uh, that more people talked about, uh, American crime story, the assassination of Gianni Versace, then talked about OJ Simpson, then talked about, uh, the scream Queens. We forgot scream Queens before then talked about American horror story. Uh, but all of his shows are noisy. They are shocky, they are big, they are big emotions and big moments. And so, you know, I appreciate this not just because he's doing something well, but because I think he came of television age at a time when that was not the trend, right? When the trend, especially in mature television, if that's a dig at The Sopranos, The Sopranos was is seen as sort of the ushering in the age of peak TV, Mm -hmm. right? And Ryan Murphy at that time was working in teen television. He was relegated to a different level away from Breaking Bad's, The Mad Men's, even The Walking Dead's. Uh, Like how a show about zombies is supposed to be like a thoughtful, 
uh, musing on life's existence. I don't know, but that's not how Ryan Murphy would do it. No. And, you know, he actually blatantly outright in this piece calls that what it is. Uh, quote, Murphy repeatedly suffered such slights in his career as his work was eclipsed by that of people he dismisses as, quote, dowdy, middle-aged, white male showrunners writing about dowdy, middle-aged, white male antiheroes. He loved The Sopranos, but its progeny drove him nuts. Those shows were seen as weighty, worldly, universal. His were regarded as frivolous diversions. Here's what I love about this. From the beginning... From popular, which I will champion even if Ryan Murphy will not, guess who stars in Ryan Murphy shows across the board? Women. Women. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Every time. Mm -hmm. The biggest headline, the first time he did American Horror Story, which was a big departure for him after Glee, was that it was the first role that Connie Britton took after Friday Night Lights, which was a huge departure for her. Uh, But the headline was not Dylan McDermott, who was also in it, or I think that first season had Kate Mara and I don't know who else. But Ryan Murphy shapes his show around women. He is interested in the inner lives of women. Go back to the nuns and how interesting that was. Scream Queens and even the O.J. Simpson story, which was overtly, of course, about O.J. Simpson and Robert Kardashian and so forth, has a lot of time for Faye Resnick and for Marsha Clark and even for Chris Kardashian. He sees the world through a window that is not the same as a straight white male window. And that's a massive gift. It is a massive gift. And and yet that resentment still drives him, which I find so interesting because we hear often the Oprah story, right? When you become successful, you let go and you become grace and you don't walk around talking about who ignored you well, <laughs> and who snubbed you at a party. Now that you mention it, only Oprah says that. <laughs> well, I think that to me, that is the generally accepted language that comes with success. I and mean, for women, because we don't ask men. Correct. About their petty. Sure. Bitchinesses. We don't ask them about who slighted them on the way up. Right? Sure. 100% which is probably why I'm citing Oprah as that example. But even, you know, Ellen. Um, Ellen? Yeah. Okay. Even Ellen now doesn't really talk about, because Ellen is so successful, Ellen doesn't go on and spend a lot of time turning on her heel and being like, remember when you guys iced me? for a long time when I came out. Remember that? Ha, 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 ha. 
I mean, she doesn't do it publicly. <laughs> no, she's not fucking doing it in the New Yorker. No, but if she doesn't dance around her mansion going like, fuck all y'all. I get it. And listen, I'm sure in certain moments, of course, in certain moments, Oprah's the best gossip. But the public perception, like what is out there, in an Ellen interview, you're not going to get, this person is mean to me at the party, the way Ryan Murphy's talking about it. But here's what's so fascinating about that. And I didn't know this until I said it. But it goes back to giving people what they need and not what they want. Oprah and Ellen both present themselves as themselves. That's the product, right? And they are the product of being hugely sanguine, uh, mature, lovely women who have love and time for all. And they present that as the product that people consume. Ryan Murphy's making a totally different product. Mm -hmm. The product he is making, to quote him, is a show that was designed to give queer kids characters they could root for. And that was the case on Popular, even when the two mains were ostensibly straight girls. Uh, and that has been the case almost in every project that he has done. He's highlighting those people. So I guess my point is he doesn't need to be as sanguine because the characters that he has who have successes, they get to be sanguine. They get to be the ones who are like laughing last or living their best lives. Meanwhile, Ryan Murphy is behind the <laughs> monitors being like, that's right. You take that shit. <laughs> He's exacting his revenge through script, which I relate to, which I understand because I think that's what a lot of writers do. Uh, Ryan Murphy, unlike the other two, is a writer first, and I think he's purging a lot of those demons through the stories that he tries to tell. Yeah, I I really I really like how like not benevolent he is <laughs> here. Do you? Feel and yet I know that he is benevolent in the sense of he gives opportunity to so many people. On Pose, he's so proud of the fact that. He's casting trans actors that many people behind the scenes are LGBTQ, that his casts and his teams are so inclusive. It's wonderful. And yet he also, five minutes later, will be like, fuck that person. I hate them. I don't know. They, they didn't talk to me at that party. <laughs> but it comes back to your point about being seen. If Ryan Murphy uh, or all of the contemporaries that he is writing for or all the kids he's writing for felt that they were not seen, then his revenge, yeah, sure, he's a petty bitch, but he's like, you are not going to be able not to see us, including I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to have petty uh, dramas and I'm going to be spiteful and you're going to hear about it from me because now he has the power to do so. Uh I just, I think that is wonderfully human. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk about somebody who's running, you said, like, how does he do this? How does he have this many shows and so prolific and whatnot? I think staying human is one of the ways you do it because otherwise you do have to be superhuman. You do have to be all places in at all times and all things to all people. So I love that this is his the way he stays connected to the real world, because otherwise it's just assistants shuttling you around and more yeah. scripts and being efficient, and it could be very boring. So his pettiness is probably actually the way that he stays in touch with the actual characters. 
And I really love that, number one, he's sharing all this and seeing all this. And number two, he also still craves acceptance and approval. I mean, in one of these um, in one of these paragraphs, Emily Nussbaum talks about how, you know, she's left him, she's on the way to the airport, and he's texting her because he sent her probably a review link of of the show. And he's like, so what do you give it out of 10? <laughs> and she's like, uh, what the fuck is this? She's He's like, flop? But here's my question to you. If he's still petty, if he's still you know, hungry, as you say, isn't that what keeps you going? Or here's another way of looking at it. If you achieve all the things that you wanted to achieve and you get the awards and you feel like, oh, I'm so grateful and delighted, could you get lazy? Like, isn't the pettiness just a way to keep himself, to keep the fire burning? For sure. And I think it has to be directed in the right way. We have seen examples of artists who need who need and are fueled by controversy or people taking them down. Um, And in the absence of that, they either create it and it becomes not organic and it gets misplaced, it gets misdirected, and their productivity becomes so negative that it's a turnoff. He's able to channel his resentments, his pettiness, his grudges into something quite beautiful. Um... And I think, number one, it's a matter of taste. It's a matter of also being a writer, which means that you are a collaborator in this industry. Mm, I don't know how much Ryan Murphy is collaborating versus uh, there's a lot of rewriting I've understood that goes on, but I think that's his prerogative as somebody whose voice and tone and taste, as you say, is so singular. Yes. Um and the the example that comes up to mind is something I've always said about Kanye West. Mm-hmm. He needs tension and conflict almost to create. And at times it has worked out for him, but at other times it has been like, to quote Ryan Murphy, a flop. Um, so I, while fundamentally I agree with you that hunger and fire is necessary and Listen, in sports, they do it all the time. They call it, yeah, it's like it's corkboard material. It's, it's locker room material. Another team fucking puts you down and dismisses you and you, you cut out that piece of the newspaper, you put it in your locker room. Michael Phelps, for example, um, did it all the time. And he, every training session, he'd open the locker, he'd look at the, the, the person who said that he wasn't fast enough, he couldn't swim, he wouldn't win more medals. And that fueled him. I think that when you're able to channel it in a way that is productive, it's great. I don't know that everybody works that way. I guess my curiosity is whether there are only two options. Is there only highs and lows of the Kanye West and Ryan Murphy variety or kind of achieving your goals and being comfortable and finishing? Um, You know, a friend sent me a text the other day, mostly joking, saying, what happened to Nora Jones? Uh, and I said, I guess if you released the definitive 20 something jazz album, you did it. You did the jazz album. There's nobody coming to catch you and there's nobody saying you weren't that good. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know what's going on with Nora Jones. Call me Nora Jones. But you know, at a certain point, if you've reached that height, you reach it. Is there a middle ground is my question between being hungry and, uh, 
maybe petty and having access to grind or putting a lid on it and being sanguine about the fact that you are done. Obviously, the comparison here in terms of the giant deal and in terms of the uh, productivity and output is Shonda Rhimes, who I guess to your point embodies a bit more of a, you know, an Oprah-like spirit in Mm -hmm. terms of being okay with everything and having the year of yes and so forth. I don't totally buy it. Of all the creators we have talked about in, in this show and others, Shonda Rhimes is still very, very emotionally invested in her characters. And those characters are petty and those characters are bitchy and have dramas and so forth. So I believe that she somewhere is still having something that generates those demons along because they make her work, because they make her get get the fire that gets it out the door. Well, I'm glad you brought up Shonda Rhimes because that leads me to another point that I found that was really interesting to go back to our TV theme and writing and series where Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk, his, you know, longtime partner, collaborates with him on almost everything and also is engaged to Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh my God, I was waiting to see if you were going to say it or was I going to say it? Like, (laughs) would that be the only time that I would voluntarily say Gwyneth Paltrow on the podcast? So Brad Falchuk talks about the fact that the shows that they have worked on, namely Glee, have a season three problem. And so one of their fixes for this has been they've moved to the anthology. Mm-hmm. They Their most recent successes, you would say, post-Glee have been they do a season, then they scrap it, they keep like an overall concept, but new storylines and new characters come in and that has been a way to sort of solve that, whatever it is, the season three slump. I mean- Shonda, sorry, go ahead. No, they were slumping before season three in some cases, yeah. but they do talk about how network TV, and this is not new, but network TV and demanding 22 hours mm-hmm. a year is a fucking grind and yeah. it's hard to get it out. And I think Nip Tuck fell into that same yeah. uh, arena of slumpage. Yeah. So yeah, it, it makes sense. And- you know, Shonda just wrapped seven, right, on Scandal. Seven seasons for Scandal, yes. And Grey's is… Uh, they're starting up on season 15. Right. Like 14 is about to conclude. Yeah. Yeah. So Shonda, you know, whether or not there is a season three slump, Shonda sticks with it. Whereas to go back to sort of what I was saying before, like Ryan has to scrap… And reset. We, scrap and reset. Like you looking scrap for new- in both ways. Like scrap it like fuck you guys. I'm done with you yeah. characters. Yeah. Which is funny. Like, yeah, it's a it's a scorched earth kind of environment. And somebody who can't rebuild from what they already have, but needs kind of nothing to to go from. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I buy that. I think it's really interesting. And I think it's really working for him. Like when Ryan Murphy was making Nip Tuck. It was like, sure, Nip Tuck is good-ish. It was maybe overlooked because it was, sorry, Ryan Murphy, campy uh, is the would have been the accepted term. Certainly Glee was overlooked. Certainly popular was not even a conversation. But when American Horror Story premiered, it was big and noisy, as I said. And when American Horror Story 
scrapped the first season, as you say, and premiered in season two with a totally different concept, it was it was kind of revelatory. He was the first to do that under that same umbrella. Yeah. To say, no, no, it's the same show, but it's a totally different show. And there have been people who have emulated that since to, to great effect. Now that's a known thing to say, well, the next season will be kind of the same, but totally different. Yeah. Uh, but he was the first. So that's really leaning into getting bored and moving on uh, has actually really benefited him and might even go so far as to be the Ryan Murphy style. So in a way, uh, you know, basically what you're saying is Kanye West needs to take lessons from Ryan uh-huh. Murphy because he has made his arguable shortcomings work for him. Yes. Or Brad Falchuk is and Ryan Murphy gets the credit. Your call. Well, to your point, you can scorch the earth, but there are ways to do it where, like not to super fucking lean into the lamest analogy, but there's a way to do it where you leave fertilizer behind. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, you're getting rid of the, a different analogy that TV writers often use is that you're playing with dolls. And you can throw out the dolls and see what happens with new ones in a whole new scenario. So here's what you pitched this week. A name that I really wasn't expecting. I mean, it's see. not the only thing I pitched, but yes. uh, one of the ones that we wound up with, yes. Aisha Tyler. Aisha Tyler is one of those people who has become my, like, pet <laughs> a Hollywood person. And, you know, I'm very sensitive about it because this is not the first time that I have pitched an Aisha Tyler story and somebody laughs. Uh, I read one of her first comedy books back in a long time ago, loved it, and kind of pursued her for an interview for really no reason at all. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wasn't sorry. She's funny. She's smart. She's totally underrated. If you have no idea who we're talking about, Aisha Tyler is a comedian. She has been an actor. She had that stint on Friends. She was a longtime host on The Talk for a really long time. Uh, Is a six-foot, I believe, black woman uh, who's a comedian who uh, is just fucking cool. Um, And, you know, a few years ago when the late-night host topic came up, I remember talking about her with... Sarah on our site and talking about maybe she would be a great uh, late night host. Uh, and we debated whether her biggest problem was the fact that she's tall. And Sarah said, plus she smokes cigars, drinks whiskey and plays video games. She's one of the guys. I do remember a time when Aisha Tyler was like called out on social media for as though she wasn't a real video game yeah. fan. And she schooled all of her trolls and was like, sorry, and went into language I don't understand at all. She's just kind of uh, like an awesome chick. Sarah probably also has a, a very strong affinity for her because of Archer. Yep. Uh, she's a longtime voice on Archer for sure, uh, but still not what you'd call a household name. She's not just a working actress in Hollywood or a working host. She's a little bit above a working host, but she's not a household name. Yeah, I I would agree. And I, I thought... I mean, I'm going to be honest. Your face is even struggling. When I said she's a little bit ahead of a working host, you were like, is she? Well, 
Listen, I'm on Aisha Tyler's side too. I also enjoy her. I've interviewed her. I think she's awesome. And what I'm building up to is I think like maybe about 10 years ago, we thought she was going to bla- blow. Maybe about 10 years ago, we thought she was going to like blow up, right? Absolutely. Break. Yeah. And it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And then maybe three years after that, we were like, oh, we were just premature. It's going to happen now. Yeah. And then not. She's been consistent for a really long time. Yeah. But not, uh, it, you know, to use a term we were talking about earlier, not noisy. Yeah. Like she's around, but she's never, she's never had a scandal or anything close to it. She, you know, she's reasonable when she talks about stuff. She talked about her infertility on uh, the talk and her choice not to kind of pursue that and how that was a choice. People gave her a lot of like attention, but it's, she's never been a a splashy person. No, she's never been a splashy person and… With And I don't mean this in a pejorative way, but it just feels like there's been a lot of treading water, right? In this business, you, 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 you step up levels. There are levels. You make moves. And the moves have seemed to be lateral. I guess so. And one of the reasons that I think that's surprising and that we're talking about it at all is because Aisha Tyler appears to me, to you, I think, to have the X factor, mm-hmm. to have the the star power. Yes. It's not that she's lacking that. It's not that she's somebody who was cast in a show no. and you're like, that is a pretty face with nothing else. No. She, I, I think she has. That's why we've been calling for it and waiting for it and it hasn't happened. And then we're like, oh, oh, now. No, okay, now. No, okay, now. And so with the story that you pitched… It was, you know, a new project for her taking on, um, I'll let you explain it. And I have to confess, like when I read it, I was like, huh? Okay. So here's the deal. Uh, we have found out that Aisha Tyler is going to be hosting, uh, a new show called Unapologetic with Aisha Tyler. It's going to air after episodes of the new AMC show, Dietland. I feel like I've talked about Dietland on this show before. It is a book that was written by Sarai Walker. It was adapted by Marty Noxon, who I'm obsessed with, who's an incredibly skilled showrunner from Buffy, from Mad Men, from Unreal, etc. We've mentioned her several times. I'm just going to give the bio every time. Yeah. Like it's a button. Uh, And so Dietland is... Really, you know, the book was written several years ago. The show would have been in production before any Me Too anything, but God, is it timely and topical. Mm -hmm. It is about kind of an underground organization of women who start to get revenge on those men, some of those men who have done some of those things. Uh, And so it's supposed to be very juicy. I'm really looking forward to it. And unapologetic is the talk show that Aisha Tyler is going to host after it. Or uh, more precisely, it's being described as an after show that will not talk just about the show, about Dietland, but that will kind of explore, quote, the broader female-centric issues and themes that Dietland explores. She's going to talk with celebrities, with some of the actors and the producers, uh, with other writers and comedians and whoever uh, comes on her show. Which I'm into. I think those are valuable, valid conversations. It's that word after show. 
And typically we associate after shows with like, you know, the bonus show that's really not going to get that much attention and it's supporting some hoarding. Yeah. I mean, they call it a companion talk show. Uh, so I think that allows for a little more broadness. It's mm-hmm. not just regurgitating the… Like a recap. That's yeah. right. And like quotes and things like that. Yeah. And with all love to to people that you and I both know and work with who have enjoyed after shows uh, in, in their infancy and have yeah. worked on those. Um, but I do think this is a really interesting move because the 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 email that I shared where Sarah and I were talking uh, is not the only time that Aisha Tyler has come up in the context of late night. And the idea that she has been somebody who can spin her comedic skills and her talk show skills into a hosting position is, you know, is not... It's not insignificant. It's not insignificant and it's not unheard of. Yeah. Certainly she's it's been debated. She's been in the conversation. Yes. Uh what I maybe I'm being a bit optimistic to go with my contrariness, but what I like about this is that there is a lot of potential for for lack of a better word, there's a lot of potential for some of this stuff to go viral. There's a lot of potential here with comedians and stars and whatnot talking about what's going on and it's happening late at night for it to be really incendiary. Uh, And the other thing I think is that, yeah, it kind of does like, oh, okay, it's a companion talk show. It's not even just a talk show of whatever. But then I think about how low the expectations were for Samantha B to have a talk show that was only once a week and only on... TBS that wasn't one of the main nets. It wasn't the daily show. It wasn't whatever. And it has proven to be incredibly satisfying Mm -hmm. and fruitful. Okay. Okay. This is good. I'm, I'm starting to come around. Are you humoring me or do you you see it? I, I, I'm starting to come around if I, yes, I agree with you that that is the potential. I'll tell you the reason why I was, huh, is because I was like, I thought we were beyond talk soup. For sure. Talk soup is… And that was the most immediate comparison. Interesting. Sure. That talk soup being the regurge of… I'm really conscious that maybe there are people watching or listening who are too young to remember talk soup. But that, yeah, Aisha Tyler and then after her Joel McHale recapped the talk shows. Yeah. uh, And kind of joked about them. But I think this is… You know, maybe it'll work and maybe it isn't, but I think the description of this show is so broad that I think there's room to discuss maybe topical weekly issues that come up as well as show issues, right? Last episode, you asked me, what would you do for a a Busy Phillips talk show? And you could do this and that. And this show lends itself to a structure that is maybe a little bit more like Weekend Update which is to say one of the clips comes from the show and they talk about a thing that happened in the show. And has that ever happened to you, special mm-hmm. guest Ryan Murphy? And has that ever happened to you, uh, you know, actor from the show? And then maybe they scroll through some headlines of the week, not from Talk Soup necessarily and quipping on a stage. And there was like one PA kind yeah. of holding up pictures in the back. Uh, but I think there has a lot of potential here to to be immediate. And that's what's exciting because what she has been lacking has been a platform that is 
late at night enough to support her humor. Yeah. Um, but also smart enough because if there's something that maybe has held her back, it's that she's fucking smart and yeah. that people don't always want that with their late night, uh, as evidenced by what happened when Jimmy Kimmel dared to talk about healthcare. So I am optimistic about this. I already was primed to be because as I say, I'm excited about the series, but I see this as something that could be really cool and that I have a surprising amount of anticipation for. Well, there's my homework and everybody listening, yours too. Uh, read the book, uh, author name? Uh, Dietland by Sarai Walker. And maybe, you know, maybe you just want to see the series play out. Obviously, there are always changes between the book and the series, so up to you. But it premieres June 4th, so does the Aisha Tyler talk show, Unapologetic, which is, again, a great title. Uh, They're both June 4th on AMC, which brought you Mad Men and other uh, white men. So, you know, why not? And we will post the Dietland trailer to the show notes to get you pumped for this series. Um, A lot of people are pretty hyped for this series. Marty Noxon, the stars. um, The stars who include, by the way, uh, the return of Juliana Margulies in another spectacular wig. Another. I mean, what, it's been a year since Good Wife? Uh, Yeah, yeah, sure. Yep, and she's, the wigs are back. Yeah, (laughs) and the wigs are back. So... We'll attach the trailer to the show notes, read the book if you want to really be a great student. Um, And yeah, I like, listen, this is why we do this. That is a great pitch for me in terms of changing my perspective. Because I will say when I initially read that thing on Aisha Tyler, I was like, oh, like she's a name enough where I, I didn't know that that wasn't going to be a step back or, again, a treading water lateral move. But, yes, the potential, now that you've positioned it that way, is there. But you're the one who taught me that. You're the one who, every time there was a situation that looks kind of like, really, we're going to do that? That you're always like, here's the secret. You're a little bit of a merry sunshine about going, but look at this opportunity and look at that and look how great it'll be for this. So my general snarkiness has been uh, blunted by your positivity about work, finding (laughs) the work situation silver lining, although I will say in this situation, I wasn't working that hard to find it. So to to cap off this episode, which is all things TV, Dietland, June 4th, once again, in this time of platinum television, peak TV, there are no breaks. No, no, no. There's no summers off. There's no catching no. up. Uh, like, no. And in fact, if you have a series that you've missed and you're like, oh, I probably should, unless you really love it, if you're like gagging to see a show, watch it. Otherwise, let it go. Let it go because there's always something new coming along. There's Island, as you said, Pose, uh, which is Ryan Murphy's latest opus uh, and proves and should prove to be amazing is June 3rd, is that premiere on FX. Uh, All of those pilots that are still in flux as we speak, by the time this podcast goes to air, may have found new homes. We'll be watching them and watching where they land and whether or not you should watch any or all of the above. But first, 
watch the royal wedding <laughs> Saturday, May 19th, coming to you from Windsor, England. Um, and you're going to love this. This is how I'm going to relate it to work to Anna next week. Yes, go on. The military precision of the royal family, because I covered the Will and Kate wedding. Yes. And on the procession route, I was stationed at the Duke of York Memorial, and they, in advance, say to you, um, the cameras will be coming to you at blah, blah, blah. Like the the cameras, which cameras? Like the broadcast cameras, or they'll say, like, they will be passing this monument, they will be passing Trafalgar Square at this time, the procession will take 45 minutes, the wedding will start at this time. So it's a Disney parade, is what you're saying. Oh, fuck. Like, so... I can't remember the exact time where the carriage after they got married and they left Westminster Abbey was like um, coming along and passing where I was the Duke of York monument, heading down the mall towards Buckingham Palace, but it was to the fucking minute. And remember, like, you know, weddings, we've all been to them. Yeah, but what what could go wrong? Horses can go wrong. These horses are on time. They're fucking pulling a carriage. The bad horses would be fired. (laughs) Like, if she breaks a heel, there are 10 pairs right lined up right next to her. It is unreal. Anyway, so the ceremony will begin at noon time in Windsor. Do your time differences wherever you are listening in the world. I do not want to do the math for you because you might be on Australia. You might be in Hong Kong. You might be in LA. You might be in New York. It's noon British time. Just fucking look it up. Look at the time difference. Watch and watch the work that goes into the spectacle. But you are going to text me to wake me up, right? Like that's what's happening is you're going to be like, get up out of your bed. It depends on how much of the pre-shit you want to watch. And no, I want to like, I want the inside gossip via text in between your like. <laughs> so if you don't want to watch the pre-shit, fine. I will call you like 20 minutes before you need to wake up because I know you need to get your coffee going. I know you. I so. love how you say, oh, you need to get your coffee going. Like it's a line of blow. Like can you imagine coffee when you wake up? So yes, I will call you from there. I will wake you up and we're going to watch. Everybody watch this wedding and I'm going to make you talk about it next week. Military precision, wedding work, all that. I cannot wait. And, I mean, by the time you listen to this, it would have been over, but I'm going to also harass you, Duanna, this weekend to watch the Lifetime movie with me. So that we can compare the Lifetime movie to the real-life wedding? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Fine. If you have not watched the Lifetime movie, track it down and catch up in the lead-up to the wedding and we'll cover that as well. Even though it definitely won't be as fun as watching Dirty Dancing Live. <laughs> <laughs> and on that inexplicable note. Um, thank you for listening. Show your work. Work hard. Keep sending us your emails and your tweets. Uh, check us out on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes. Leave comments. Happy Royal Wedding Watching. Bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.